We'll turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 2. That's where we're going to be this morning. And I am delighted to be able to kick off our series uh, leading up to Christmas from the Psalms. Um, Psalm 2 is one of my favorite Psalms, so I'm delighted that I get to preach from it this morning. Uh, Oftentimes when we go to the Psalms, at least for me, I I like to go to the Psalms in the morning. and uh, They're a wonderful time of worship for me. I usually like to wake up with a hot cup of coffee, and I like to read the Psalms in the morning, and it refreshes my soul. Um, it helps me to worship God. Um, and though the Psalms are definitely designed to do that, they do help us worship. Oftentimes we kind of look at the Psalms in maybe a nearsighted uh, way and don't look at them for what they truly are. Oftentimes in the Psalms, they are, they are prophetic um, implications of the Psalms. Oftentimes the Psalms do so much more than just uh, express worship to God. They are, in fact, uh, presenting divine realities that have not yet come to pass. And as we come to Psalm chapter 2, this is exactly what we have. Uh, Psalm chapter 2 is a prophetic psalm about the anointed one of God. Uh, Unlike many other psalms, Psalm 2 doesn't have a superscription, so the way that we know that it's prophetic is by looking at the broader context of Scripture. In in Acts chapter 4, verses 25 through 27, Peter uses this verse, this psalm, to demonstrate that Christ is the Messiah. Uh, Verses 25 and 26 say, "...who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David your servant, said..." Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. This is the opening verses of Psalm chapter 2, but it's also what Peter declares in Acts chapter 4. And so we know by the broader context of Scripture that Psalm 2 is not only a prophetic psalm, but it was also written by King David. David, we know him as the premier king of Israel. God made him king. He helped him through various trials. Uh, He helped him overcome various different threats of opposition to his reign. And so he had a very uh, good familiarity with kingship. He had a very good familiarity with, because of his own circumstances, that would inform his understanding of writing this psalm. Because what we see in Psalm chapter, or Psalm 2, is we see a rebellion against God. And not only against God, but against his chosen king. And so it's, it could be easy for us to have a nearsighted view of Psalm 2 and only view David. But for a couple of striking reasons, we cannot leave this psalm with David. It is so much more than just him. For two reasons, it cannot be David. The first is this psalm describes a worldwide revolt. And it doesn't fit David. David, though he had several different enemies uh, from several different countries, tried to conquer his kingdom that God had given him, it was not a worldwide revolt against him. David also didn't have authority over the entire world, and so it would not fit that the entire world was rebelling against him. But greater than this, the whole of Scripture shows us that Psalm 2 is, in fact, about Christ. I want to show you just a couple of examples. Hebrews chapter 1. Verses 1 and 2, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, whom also he made the world. 
And so Hebrews, at the beginning, it's talking about Christ. Now look at verse 5. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. This is a direct quote from verse 7 of chapter of Psalm 2. It's a direct quote. And flip a couple pages over in Hebrews chapter 5. Verse 5 repeats this same theme. It says, So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest. But he who said to him, that being God, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Again, quoting from Psalm 2 verse 7. So what we have before us is a prophecy. A prophecy written a thousand years before the life of Christ that is all about Christ. In the nearer context, yes, it is about David. There are some things that are certainly about him, but ultimately this psalm is about Christ. It's about Christ and God having set him up as his king. As we jump into the text this morning, it would be helpful just to point out a couple of things about the structure of Psalm chapter 2. As you look at your Bibles, maybe it even has different section breaks in it. Uh, Mine does, and there are four different stanzas. Four different stanzas of three verses each. And in each of these stanzas, there is a different speaker. There is a speaker in verses 1 to 3 that is different from 4 to 6, also different from 4 to 7 and 9 to 10, all different speakers. We have four different speakers all in this one psalm. And so as we go down the line of each of one of these stanzas, it reveals more and more to us about how God has made Christ king. But we have to begin in verses 1 to 3. And if you're taking notes this morning, point number one is the conspiracy of the nations. Verses 1 through 3, the conspiracy of the nations. I'll read it out loud and you can read in your Bibles. Why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate on a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. What we have here in the beginning stanza of Psalm chapter 2 is an open rebellion, a worldwide rebellion against God. And not only God, but against the rule of God through his chosen king, his anointed one. Uh, This word anointed, oftentimes when we think of the the word anointed, it's talking about kings. We know that in the Old Testament, the kings of Israel were anointed before they were made king. In First uh, Samuel chapter 16, we see the anointing of King David, even while Saul is still king. Uh, but what this word anointed came to mean over time was the Messiah. The, the anointed one is the chosen one of God who would rule and reign over the people of God as according to the prophecies that were made all throughout the Old Testament. And so when it says that the kings and the rulers of the nations take counsel against God and against his anointed one, we can see very clearly that this is a rebellion against Christ. In fact, the text that we looked at earlier, Acts chapter 4, verses 25 and 26, the very next verse, Peter is ascribing that the greatest display and the absolutely working out of this statement was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. In the crucifixion, you have leaders of all different types of people. Herod is a leader of the people of Israel. You have the religious leaders of Israel, but you also have Pontius Pilate. You have the Roman guard, 
all coming together who should have been enemies. The Romans did not like the Jews, and the Jews especially did not like the Romans for inhabiting their land. But what you have in the crucifixion is a uniting of the world powers all against the anointed one of God, Jesus Christ. And so, despite the fact that they were enemies, they had one common purpose. That common purpose was to rid themselves of God and his rule through his chosen king, Jesus Christ. They are rebelling, these nations, these rulers who represent them, they're rebelling because they have no desire to fall underneath the subjection that they owe to God. What we're going to see as we walk through this psalm is that God has control and rule over everything. There is no nation, there is no people that is outside of his sovereign rule. And yet these rulers, these would-be rulers of the nations, are raging. They are conspiring together so that they could try to tear apart from them these fetters. These words, this word fetter, it reminds us it's a picture of animals being led by ropes. And so, according to these rulers, the the law of God, subjection to God is a bondage, a a hefty bondage that they can't want to be freed from anymore. They have no desire to be loyal to God, to submit to him, to honor him as the ruler of the world. They want to rule themselves. And because they do, they, they come together. They conspire. They come up with this plan that they are going to tear apart the bondage that they are in to God and his chosen King Christ. And that is the crucifixion. The crucifixion was their greatest attempt. It was the best shot they had. But what we know about the crucifixion is that Christ did not remain dead. But in three days time, God raised him from the dead, gaining victory, not just over the enemies, but over sin and death. The psalmist is asking the question. It's a question at the beginning of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? And why do the peoples imagine or meditate on a vain thing? It's baffling to the psalmist, to David. It's, it's baffling because he understands reality. And that is that God is totally in control. That he possesses all power. And that there's nothing that can stop his rule. But these rulers, these nations, they are so blinded by their hatred is so blinded by their love of self and greed for rule of themselves that they cannot see clearly that God is in control. The psalmist calls it a vain thing that they meditate on. An empty thing. We know this word vain from Ecclesiastes. It is breath. It's, it's nothing. It's like a mist in the air. Their plans will come to nothing. This is what they're meditating on. The psalmist is so perplexed by how these kings, how these nations would so seek to free themselves from the rule of God and from Christ. The whole world desires to silence the one true, holy, ruling, sovereign God. And for us, everything that we see in the world around us is the outworking of this rebellion. It's the outworking of a world that is in revolt and rebellion against God and his rule. And so since rebellion is the source and it is the course of this world, it can often be intimidating for us. It can often be discouraging for all those who name the name of Christ and have bowed the knee to his rule. 
Because what we see around us does not look like Christ's kingdom is advancing. In fact, it looks like the kingdom of the enemy is becoming stronger and stronger every day. The wickedness is rampant around us. And the kings of the nations around us seem as if they have ultimate strength and are directing the course of history according to their will. And so, because it can be oftentimes discouraging, we we have to ask a question. But the question that we should not ask is, how do we stop it? It's not up to us to stop the advancement of wickedness and rebellion against God. It's not our job. We are not the ones who possess the power. Because according to human strength, we don't have the power to stop it. Rather, the question that we should ask is, what does God think about it? What does God think about the so-called revolt against his rule? This leads us directly into our next stanza, the next point, and that is the contempt of the Father. So speaker number one is the nations and their conspiracy. Point number two, the contempt of the Father in verses four through six. Read with me. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord mocks them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his fury. We get to see in verses four through six what God thinks about the rebellion of the world against him and against Christ. And what we find is that God dismisses it out of hand. He is not shaken by it at all. In fact, the Lord scoffs at these rulers. He scoffs at the nations that would so dare to rise up against him. And then he speaks to them and he causes them to be terrified. These rulers who were shaking their fists at God are now shaking in their boots. And all God has done is speak. They are this way because how powerful the word of God is. When God speak, things happen. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. How did he do it? He spoke. God said, let there be light and what? There was light. Within the tongue of God is the concentration of all power. When God speaks, all of his creation responds. And so when God speaks to these rulers who have so brassenly raised themselves up against him and his rule, they are terrified because they know of the power of his word. It is worth noting that this is the only place in scripture where God is said to laugh. It's the only place. But it is not a laughter of joy or amusement. It is a laughter of derision and contempt. That these puny, small rulers would rise up against him. I can remember as a small child, uh, and maybe you can as well, wrestling with my dad. And for me, sometimes maybe I'd get a little bit too serious and and think that I might be able to do some kind of damage to him as a five-year-old. But to my dad, it was just a game. It was a joke. It was silliness, and rightfully so. It would be absolutely ridiculous for anyone to think that a mere five-year-old would be able to pose any kind of threat to a fully grown man. Right? That'd be ridiculous. But what these kings are doing is infinitely more ridiculous Because these kings, these rulers, these nations are not as if they have any strength in and of themselves. 
They are totally helpless and dependent upon the very mercy of God. They draw their very next breath due only to his mercy. And with that breath that they have received in mercy, they curse God and they desire to free themselves from his rule. And so when God laughs at them, it is not a laugh of joy or amusement. It is a laugh of contempt and derision. Listen to how Isaiah describes these kings, these would-be kings in Isaiah chapter 40. Verse 7, it says, The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of Yahweh blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. Verse 15 says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as a speck of dust on the scales. All the nations are as nothing before him, says verse 17. They are counted by him as non-existent and utterly formless. And down in verse 23, it says, It is he, God, who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth utterly formless. Their rebellion, it is utter foolishness. They are counted as nothing, a drop in the bucket, a speck of dust on the scales. They are nothing as they compare themselves to God. They have no ability to actually bring about their rebellion to a successful result. Though God allows the wicked to rule temporarily in this life, they have no rule outside of the sovereignty of God. God is the one who sets up rulers. Even in our own nation, whether we like who's ruling or not, it is because God has allowed them to be in the position that they are. And so there's no reason for complaining. There's no reason for worry or for doubt just because of someone that we don't like becomes the ruler of our nation or the, nation, or the ruler of a nation that has a lot of power. Because God is the one who sets those kings up. And it is nothing for God to tear those rulers also down. These rulers who think they possess so much power, think of Pharaoh and the Egyptian might of their time. The Egyptians were the greatest military force in the world at the time of the Israelites' slavery to them. And yet what God does is he brings about plagues to level them to the ground so that they are nothing. All their glory is taken away. And even as the Israelites flee from them, God drowns this mighty army in the depths of the Red Sea. It was nothing for God to do this to Pharaoh. Or think of Nebuchadnezzar, who, again, the ruler of the greatest empire at his time. It built beautiful cities. Had marvelous, mighty works that he had done. An incredible military force that spread across the entire known world. But with one word, God makes Nebuchadnezzar to be a beast in the field. And for seven years, he was humbled so that he would recognize who the true God is. It is nothing for God to bring to nothing those who think they possess real power. Man cannot overthrow God. Man cannot thwart the sovereign will of God. The creature cannot stop the hand of the creator. What God has determined will come to pass without fail. And so friends, believers in the room today, we can have so much confidence there is so much joy and peace that we can have because despite the unified rebellion of the world against our God, the God of all true power recognizes it as nothing. What a source of joy and peace for us. Despite whatever the nations are doing, despite whatever the wickedness that is being advanced in our world, we can have confidence 
We can have assurance that our God reigns on high and whatever he decides to do, he will accomplish it. This should be great cause for joy and for peace for us. I've left out verse 6, but it's important to know what these rulers are so terrified about. What is it that God says that is so terrifying to them? Well, in verse 6, this is what God says. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. This is terrifying to any ruler. In fact, we remember that as Christ was born in Bethlehem, Herod, when he found out that someone who was called king was born, what was his immediate reaction? He goes insane. And he, he, he bumbles about and he says, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to kill every child that's under the age of two just so that there's no possible way that anyone can rise up against my rule. All the rulers of the world love their positions of power. And they will do anything they possibly can to keep themselves reigning and ruling. But when God, who possesses all power, says, I have set up my king, that's terrifying to any ruler. Because what that means for them is that their rule and their reign is going to be short-lived. That means that their rule is not actually the one that has all power. As soon as the true king comes, anyone who's an imposter, anyone who stands in his way, will be wiped out utterly. And so when God says, I have set up my king, these rulers are terrified. Because they know they possess no ability to stop what God has already determined. This now leads us to verses 7 and 9. We've seen the conspiracy of the nations and the contempt of the Father, but now we see our third speaker in verses 7 and 9, and it is the conquest of the Son. Verses 7 and 9 are the conquest of the Son. Beginning in verse 7, it says, I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. Just as we see in the New Testament, uh, the Son always speaks what the Father tells him to speak, so the Son does here. It's beginning in verse 7. And God said to me, you are my Son. This is Christ speaking. Today, I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them with a potter's vessel. What these verses are displaying for us, they're giving us striking evidence that this psalm is depicting the reign of Christ. Right here in verses 7 to 9, we see what Christ's rule will look like. It is the reason for the, the terrified looks and the terrified reactions of the rulers, because this is a description of the rule and reign of God's anointed king. And the New Testament upholds what is said here in verses 7 to 9, on several occasions, and I want you to see these. Uh, Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 30, Paul speaks concerning Christ, saying, But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to our fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And Paul here is quoting from Psalm 2-7 as proof that Jesus is Messiah. 
God fulfilled his promises through Christ's first coming, through his, uh, his birth, his righteous life, his sacrificial death, and his victorious resurrection. They are all fulfillments of the promises that God has made concerning his king. Also, turn to Revelation, beginning in chapter 2. There are several instances in, in Revelation, but we're just going to look at three. Beginning in verse 25, it says, Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I have also received authority from my father. Chapter 12, verse 5 says, And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. One more in chapter 19, looking at verses 11 through 16, it says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. This is a prophetic depiction of the glorious return of Christ to destroy the wicked of the world. But it continues on in verse 15. From his mouth, this being Christ, comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Friends, there may be kings and rulers today. Their power is so finite. Their rule is so limited. But the one that we serve, the anointed of God, is the king of all kings. And he is the Lord of all lords. There is no rule outside of him. And there is no power that can withstand him. When it says that he will rule the nations with a rod of iron and break them as clay vessels, as earthenware vessels. Can you imagine taking a baseball bat to a clay pot? What's going to happen? It's going to shatter into a thousand pieces. That's what the rule of Christ will be against the wicked. They are powerless to stop him and they are powerless to survive in his reign. In Christ's reign, he will judge all the wicked who have rebelled against him. And as we look at verses 7 to 9, we also see the source of Christ's authority. It comes directly from God. Jesus does not come with his own authority. He even says that in the Gospels. He comes with the authority of the Father. The Father who is the creator of all the world. The Father who is the one who made the heavens and the earth through Christ. And so because Christ has authority to rule all over the world, over every single individual, over every single person, this rebellion that is in verses 1 through 3 is cosmic treason. 
It is rebellion of infinite proportions. Because they are not rebelling against just an earthly king and his rule that he has set up in his own power. They are rebelling against the very rule of God. And how would you deal with a traitor? How would you deal with a rebel if you were a king of a nation? Well, it's obvious. Any traitor, any rebel has to be punished. They have to be put to death. That's the, that's the price of treason. That's the price of rebellion. That's what is deserved. And so these rulers of the nations, this is exactly what they deserve. And this is exactly what Christ will exact upon them when he comes in his reign. All those who have rebelled against the rule of Christ, all those who would set themselves up as rulers, must answer to the king whom they have rebelled against. But the psalm doesn't end here in verse 9. We have one more speaker. We have one more stanza. Look at verses 10 to 12 with me. And what we see in verses 10 through 12 is the counsel of the Spirit. Verses 10 to 12, the counsel of the Spirit. Remember Acts chapter 4, verse 25. It says that it is the Holy Spirit who wrote this psalm through the mouth of David. And so we have here in verse 10 to 12, the Holy Spirit speaking and making an appeal. What you have in Psalm 2 is a triune response, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to the rebellion and the conspiracy of all those who would rebel against God. It is not just the Father, it is not just the Son, it is all the Father, Son, and Spirit in unison voice declaring this truth to the nations. And what we would expect in verses 10 to 12, what the Spirit would say, what is expected for us to see is only one thing. We should expect to see that these rulers and these nations who they represent are condemned for their crimes, are condemned for their crimes of treason and rebellion, but that isn't what we see. Yes, there is judgment for all those who rebel against God, but there is also mercy for all those who repent. And that's what we see in verses 10 to 12. Read with me. It says, So now, O kings, show insight. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Instead of receiving immediate condemnation, which they rightly deserved, the rulers and the nations instead receive an appeal from the Spirit of God that they would respond in wisdom and repentance. He's telling them it's time to wake up. It's time to see things as they truly are. Stop, take off the blinders that are keeping you in your rebellion. There is no chance for you. There is no chance that your rebellion against God and your attempt to rule by yourself can possibly be successful. Wake up, remove the blinders, have insight. He is begging, he's pleading. Show insight. Be warned and take the warning. He calls them to worship God. He calls them to worship the Lord and to rejoice. This is a call to repentance. He is saying, turn from your rebellion and worship the Lord who is sovereign over you and has declared his intention 
and will bring destruction on you unless you repent. Even after all their wicked rebellion against God, he is still willing to receive them. God will still have them come. It's an invitation to repentance with the promise of forgiveness. And friends, and is this not the is this not the reason for Christmas? Is this not the message of the gospel? That you and I, though we are rebels against God, trying in our small and puny efforts to raise ourselves up as our own gods, our own king, that God would deal so gently with us. That he would extend his mercy and his grace to us through his son Christ. And that rather than condemning us immediately for our treachery, he extends mercy and long-suffering to us that we might repent and receive the forgiveness that comes with it as a promise. Verse 12 shows urgency. It says, kiss the son lest he become angry and you perish in the way. There is not much time. The return of Christ is imminent. It could happen at any moment. So, what the Spirit is saying to these kings and to these nations, he says, come to the Son now, while you still have time. Come to the Son and receive forgiveness for your rebellion. Worship him with fear and trembling. God gives a promise and a blessing to all who are repentant. They will find forgiveness. It is so astounding that God even makes this appeal, but it is exactly according to his nature. Though God is infinitely holy and righteous and just, he is also merciful, gracious, and loving kind. And he is long-suffering so that we don't receive the condemnation and the destruction and the punishment that we deserve immediately. But he allows us time to repent. The call of verses 10 to 12 is, don't take God's mercy for granted. Repent of your rebellion while there is still time. And while this psalm is addressed to the nations and to their rulers, it is just as applicable to us today. You can see how significant Christmas is in this text. It's overwhelming. Because you cannot have the reign of Christ if he did not redeem his people. Christ does not rule over the world unless he has first redeemed it to himself. There is no second coming in power and glory if he did not first come in humility and suffering. That God sent his son is a reminder that God reigns. It is a reminder that he is in control of all things. Christ's coming is a sign of God's promise to us that when people turn to him, they truly are saved and receive forgiveness. However, this is not just a promise. Christ's first coming His incarnation is not just a promise, but it's also a warning. It's a warning to all those who have rejected him and have rebelled against him. They will have to answer to the king. You, if you are in rebellion against God, if you have not submitted to his his king Jesus, if you have not submitted yourself to obedience to him and worship him rather than self, this is your lot. You will have to answer to King Jesus for your rebellion against him and for your worship of self and for your desire to set yourself up as your own king or ruler. 
Christ desires to us for us to respond to his first coming so that we can share in his second coming. For all those here today who love God and love his word, this psalm is a wonderful encouragement. It's a wonderful encouragement for us because Jesus Christ is king. And he's not like an earthly king who has a short rule and then dies and goes away. He has a reign that is forever. And he is not a king that is unjust like the kings of this world who set themselves up in their own power and, and, and rule in a way that brings them the most amount of glory and brings them all that they can possibly hope to gain. Christ is a king who rules justly and righteously. And so Psalm 2 is great cause for celebration. It's great cause for rejoicing. Because we know that God has set up his king Jesus and he will rule forever and his rule will be righteous. And so all that we see around us, the advancement and the pushing of wicked agendas in our world, they will all come to nothing. They will all face judgment in Christ. They will all be brought to nothing. So dear friends, take encouragement in Psalm 2. It is the promise of your king. But for all those here today who are like the rulers in verse 3, desiring to be freed from the law and the rule of God, I can do no more than what the Spirit has already done. Show insight and take warning. You are in danger. Living for yourself and living without subjection or worship to God can only bring one thing to you. It will only bring judgment and destruction. The Bible promises eternal punishment for all those who rebel against God. The reason for the eternality of the judgment is because of the infinite nature against, of sin against God. He is an infinite God and so sin against him is of infinite proportions. What you deserve in your sin what all of us deserve is destruction and condemnation, punishment forever. So do as the Spirit instructs. Stop trying to rule. Stop trying to free yourself from the law of God. It is not heavy bondage. Stop trying to live according to your own flesh. Stop trying to set yourself up as ruler of your life. The world sells you the lie of autonomy that you can be all that you can be and you can be your own ruler. It's a lie. Don't believe it. Show insight. Take warning. Turn from your rebellion and bow before Christ willingly before you are made to do so by force. Friends, don't take God's mercy for granted. He is long-suffering but don't take his mercy and his long-suffering for granted. Today is the day of repentance. If that's you here today, do not delay. Cease from your rebellion against God and turn to him in worship and in submission. Let's pray. God, we love you. We're so thankful for these marvelous truths from your word that though the nations rage and 
Though they imagine a vain thing that they can free themselves from your rule, we know that you are all-powerful. You are God Almighty. And you have said that you have set up your king. So let us now turn to worship him. Help us to remain in subjection, obedience to him. What a marvelous reality is that we get to share in the reign and the rule of the king, though we were rebels against him. God, it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.